<laughs> we did have a great vacation. Um, by the way, I do want to thank Steve for preaching in December, and um, I believe Chuck, I heard Chuck, yeah, and Jose, Jose Nieto. Uh, we, you know, I know that you know this, but every now and then it's good to be reminded. I mean, the entire congregation, those here and those online, uh, that we have, now I'm, I'm biased, but we have an incredible, an incredibly talented staff. Um, I know because I've worked with staffs all over the world in ministry. I've worked with all sorts of people, very, very well educated, um, as many of ours are here. Um, but whenever I step down from the pulpit or come June when Patterson has to step down for vacations and things like that, uh, I look forward to hearing Andrew and Chuck and Goyo and Steve and a host of others who can easily walk up here and preach. It's a blessing. And just as a reminder, you know, this is the Word of God. Always think of Romans 1, 16 and 17. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of a God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel has never changed, really, I believe, from the creation of Adam and Eve. But certainly with the glorious um, uh, resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus, the gospel remains the same. Messengers are unimportant. All we do by God's calling is to share His Word. So I can really appreciate, by the way, Matt, when he said, when he gets nervous, it's not nervous necessarily in front of you, it's nervous, please, Lord, let this be your word, and let me disappear, and, um, and that's how I feel as well. Okay, um, let's begin. We're starting Colossians today. Let me go ahead and always forget we have that opening slide there. I don't know how familiar you are with the restoration tradition. Those who are new to the fellowship um, may not be that familiar, and it really isn't that important that you are familiar with it. But I grew up in the churches of Christ, and I, uh, I heard it my entire life. And then later on, as an adult, I began to read more about the early 19th century movement that did their very best from Alexander Campbell and Martin W. Stone, called the Stone Campbell, the Campbell Stone Movement, uh, did their very best to, uh, as best as they could, to, to talk to all those who believe in Jesus and to do their best to bring everyone together. And the only way to do that, they believe, and I believe it also, is to return to the New Testament and have one common authority that we can all, you know, dig deep in and, and, and follow the Word of God. There were many slogans during that period of time, and I heard them growing up. Slogans like, No creed but Christ. No book but the Bible. Speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. Those are very noble, noble slogans, noble ideals. My favorite, however, was we are Christians only, but not the only Christians. And the operative phrase is the very beginning, we are Christians only. You know, we lived in Japan for five years, right? I did five years. 
uh, two, without, two before I was married, uh, and then Debbie and I moved to Tokyo in 1993 for three years with the family. But I was there uh, even before we were married. That, that'll tell you how old I was. I was stationed in the Air Force in Wakanai, Japan. Wakanai is the northernmost point of Hokkaido, the, most, the, the north island in the Japans. It was just, I mean, we could even see the Russians over in Sakhalin Island. They were just north to us. We were south of the Sakhalin Islands and just east of Siberia. It was a, it was a remote, remote assignment. At the time, I, I, I wasn't a chaplain. My, my job was to, to, was, to, um, was to intercept Soviet transmissions. I did that both on the south of the Black Sea and, and there off Siberia. But I can tell you that those two years, and then later we went back for three in Tokyo, my five-year experience in Japan was wonderful. And as I began to try to evangelize the Japanese, not only the Americans who were there on base, but, you know, you want to share Christ with everyone. I can recall a street corner in Tokyo having lunch. I believe I shared that, you know, months ago. And, um, and my friend, David Matsumoto, said, uh, you know, why don't you get up there and preach? And I said, get where? He said, right here on the street corner. So I had never done that before. So indeed, it was not really a soapbox, but I would get out there and, and preach. I can tell you, and the missionaries somewhat corroborated this, uh, less than 1% of the Japanese, it was then, I think it's still the way it is today. And this, you know, I'm, I'm using Japan, but you could pretty much take any country in the world, and we're going to make a, a transition here to America. You can include America. But, but about 1% of the Japanese are nominal Christians. That means 99% don't claim to believe in Jesus. And so I would ask the missionaries, I wonder why. And they said, well, this is what we believe. We believe there would be millions more Japanese coming to Christ if indeed they could retain Shinto and Buddhism and become Christians also, not Christians only. And I thought, I understand that. We have the same problem in America. I have the same problem on base with my, with my fellow airmen and soldiers and sailors and Marines, some in Tokyo, Coast Guardsmen. I understand that problem. We also, we don't have the, you know, we don't have to worry about the gods of Shinto and Buddhism. They're pretty much not in our Western pantheon. But in fact, we have gods aplenty to take their place. Gods really just demanding our attention. The gods of materialism and, you know, money, job, wealth. The gods of, of, uh, of humanism. The gods of science. Even though it can be unproven, if a scientist says it, we just bow down and, and call them blessed. I believe in the last several months, maybe the last several years, politics have become a god. A god is anything that absolutely absorbs your time and energy and, more importantly, makes your life anxious and fearful. COVID can become a god. And so I completely understand about being a Christian also, not the preeminence of Christ. It's so important that we understand that. You know, uh, it was two years ago, actually, um, and I offer to you, let's, let's, let me preach through the New Testament. 
let's have a Bible reset. And since then, we've included many other texts, including Jonah and a host of others. But since uh, January of 2019, we have preached through uh, Matthew and Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and now we come to Colossians. Now, I realize that's only 12 of the 27, and we still have 15 more, but at the very least, understand this. Those 12 consist of 80% of the entire New Testament. And so we come to the book of Colossians. You think this Christian's only, pardon me, Christians also, is a problem that we only have in America. Paul had the exact same issue with the church at Colossae. In fact, that's the reason he wrote the epistle. He wrote the epistle because they were following some dizzying array of, of a religious you know, eclectic system that would simply say, we believe in Jesus as one of the many gods, but not Christ only. And Paul says, that's an anathema. That's just like the Galatians. The result is the same. You are severed from Christ. You who would be in Galatians justified by the law or Colossians simply considering Christ one of many, you have fallen from grace, Galatians 5, 4. And that's really what he repeats in the book of Colossians. All right, let's look at very quickly the background of Colossians. It is one of the prison epistles. Therefore, it was written probably around AD 62, and probably while Paul was in a Roman prison. The other three epistles that he penned from Rome, if indeed that's where he was, and I believe that's exactly where he was in that prison, it was Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians. Now, the church at Colossae, of, of all the letters that, Paul's, that Paul writes, other than Colossians and Philemon, he, had, he did not establish the church of the, of the city in which the congregation is located. Paul did not establish the church of God at Colossae. That was established by Epaphras, who was one of his disciples. Now, why is that important? Well, he mentions him twice in the, book of, uh, in the book of Colossians. And by the way, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Colossians chapter 1. And if you don't have a printed Bible, go ahead and get on your iPhone or smartphone. Pull up Colossians. At the very least, look at verses 1 through 14, because that's what we'll be discussing in just a moment. Actually, verses 13 and 14, but I'll allude to 1 through 12. Uh, there's so much I could say about Colossians, but I think it's time to press on. I can tell you that, that the city of Colossae, uh, centuries before the Apostle Paul, was indeed a very important city. But by the first century, it was not nearly as important as Laodicea and Heropolis. There was a trivecta of cities there in the Lycus River Valley. And um, in fact, Epaphras had, had established the churches, we know this from Colossians and Philemon, had established the churches uh, in Colossae and Heropolis and Laodicea. Um, Colossae was about 100 miles east of the capital of Phrygia, a great Roman province, and that city was Ephesus. So if you have your, your Asia Minor map in your head, for those of you who are Bible students, you can see this clearly. You can see we're talking about Western Turkey. 
you know, just, just on the side of the Aegean coast. And so you've got the seven churches of Revelation. That's to the north. To the south is Ephesus. And then west of Ephesus, I mean east of Ephesus, would be Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae. So Paul is addressing an epistle. Four chapters, you can read it in about eight minutes. He's writing a letter to the Colossian church, which, of course, begs the question, why? Why? The fact is, every time we have a letter in the Scripture, a book of the Bible, it's there for a purpose. In fact, have you ever written a letter that wasn't there for a purpose? Even if the purpose was just to say, hi, I love you, just a greeting. Everything we put on paper or text, as there's a purpose for it. And Paul's purpose in writing Colossians was there was what they call the Colossian heresy. There was a heresy that Epaphras had, had told Paul all about. He was a fellow prisoner. doesn't tell you in Colossians, but it does tell you in Philemon that, that Epaphras was a fellow prisoner of, with, with Paul. And he was very familiar with his, with his church back home in Colossae. And word came to Epaphras that there was a heresy. And anytime you've got a heretical teaching that leads you away from Christ, it's really important. So Paul sits down and he dictates this letter, closes it with his own hand, gives it to Tychicus, because Epaphras couldn't, he was in prison, and Tychicus carries it to the church at Colossae. And they read it there, and then Paul adds in Colossians, be sure and read the letter I wrote to Laodicea. But, you know, these cities were pretty close together. And so why was he writing this? Well, there was some sort of curious, and this is where one could spend a lot of time, and I'm not going to, there was this curious mixture of Babylonian Judaism mixed with the mystery religions of the Greco-Roman world and the Middle East, mixed with philosophies of Greece, Epicureanism, Stoicism. And some say there was an incipient, a baby, a beginning Gnostic heresy that would later be developed in the second century. Understand that it was a dizzying array built around a dualism that simply removed God from the material world. Well, let me tell you, church, if you remove God from the material world, where does that leave us in Christ? I mean, the incarnate Christ. God made manifest in the flesh, dwelling among men full of grace and truth. Jesus dying on the cross, the Son of Man being raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. You, you remove God from the material world, and you simply have no gospel of Christ. And Paul understood that very clearly. And so the Spirit of God is working through Paul to tell the Colossian church, this baby Gentile, maybe some Jews, this, this infantile church, cease and desist. Stop this. He does it very gently, unlike the Galatians, where he's really rough, but with the book of Colossians, he really writes a gentle, you know, very gentle spirit, but the end result is the same. You need to get rid of this and focus on the preeminence of Christ. So what was this Colossian heresy? Well, he explains it, which we'll discuss in two weeks. He talks about it in, in, in Colossians 2, verses 8 through 25, and basically, we're going to do this in about a minute, Basically, this is what he says. He says that 
It's a philosophy. By the way, let me, let me just back up for just a moment. It doesn't really matter what we label it. And I know scholars in the ivory towers love to debate it, and that's fine. You know, we all have our calling. But as far as leading a life worthy, verse 10, Colossians 1, I don't care what you call it. You can call it a philosophy. You can call it, you know, um, some sort of incipient Gnosticism. Call it what you will. The fact is, it undermined the preeminence of Christ. And whenever you undermine Jesus Christ, you completely gut yourself of the only thing that will save you. And that's why Paul is so urgent in his writing. He calls it a philosophy that is completely empty, empty deceit. Anybody who would lead you away from Christ is working for the author of lies. Now, you can take that and you can live it. In today's world, any, anyone, any politician, any scientist, any school teacher, any neighbor, anyone who leads you away from the cross and the resurrection of Christ, it is empty deceit. They may be duped. I think many of them are, but some are just flat-out liars. Paul calls this a philosophy with empty deceit. According, he says, to human tradition, it consists of elemental spirits. Here's where you get the, the, the mystery religions. Um, it is certainly not Christ-centered, verse 8. It completely disses, dismisses baptism and faith and the resurrection of Christ. It demands a very peculiar diet, special food, special drink. It's like a special handshake. You know, you believe in Jesus, fine. But if you don't know what you need to know, just come to me. You know, it's, it's, it's this secret code it, it demands a peculiar diet. There were holy days, Paul talks about, empty deceit, festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. It is a dizzying array of this, you know, eclectic religious thought. Um, angel worship. Angel worship, Paul talks about. Visions are essential. Not just, not just part of it, nothing to do with, with, with the gifts of the Spirit, but visions are central. It's characterized by being puffed up, Paul writes in the, in the Revised Standard Version, uh, pride, and it is removed from Christ. That bottom bullet, that's the reason you don't, it doesn't matter what it's labeled. The fact is, if you remove it from Christ, you remove yourself from salvation. Okay, so very quickly, so what did Paul do to combat this heresy? What, will Paul, what would Paul do today to combat any God that we have if we are Christians also? And trust me, anytime we sin, we become Christians also. Why do you think, as an aside, why do you think God, Exodus chapter 20, would begin the list of the Ten Commandments with these words? There will be no other gods besides me. A commandment, imperative, because anytime we put materialism or science as a god or politics or the country or patriotism, or anything before Christ. Christ is no longer preeminent. He is not Christian only. We are Christians also.
So this is what Paul did. He begins in chapter 1. Paul, in verses 1 through 12, said, this is how you understand the preeminence of Christ. By the way, verses 15 through 20, which we'll discuss next week, is the real meat of this. But verses 1 through 14 are important. The only way that I can keep Christ preeminent in my life is that I need to remember who I am. I need to remember my, 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 my identity. And so that's how Paul begins. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, to those set apart and faithful in Christ at Colossae. You're not in anything else. We are not, that's the whole this whole restoration tradition, I tend to love because it reminds the world of Christendom, we are in Christ. I tell my students all the time, your ultimate allegiance, the students I teach online, as well as you, our, our ultimate allegiance is not to our country, our ultimate allegiance is not to a, a set of political values. It's not, it's even, even, if, if, even if we can pull things from it and say that's biblical, because that's, that's the byproduct. Our ultimate allegiance is, is only to Christ, not to a denomination, not to a set of beliefs, only to Jesus. And the moment we forget that is when we're sucked up and caught up by the world and Jesus begins to take more and more of a back seat. I told the elders when they gave me the privilege two and a half years ago to preach. I might have said the same thing in 05, I'm not sure. But I do remember very clearly talking to Ken and the others around the table. You know, yes, I feel called by God. I feel called by you. I voluntarily submit to your oversight. But my ultimate allegiance is to Christ. And I preach at the pleasure of Christ. When our Lord Christ tells you, or asks me to step down, no I problema, no problem. Our ultimate allegiance, and that's what Paul talks about, in Christ. You know, Exodus chapter 3, very quickly, Moses at the burning bush, God calls Moses to lead his people. I've seen my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I've come down to deliver them out of that land to a good and broad land. And Moses, I've chosen you to be my deliverer. Moses retorts, Lord, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the sons of Israel go. Who am I that I should go? And by the way, what if they ask me your name? What do I tell them? Two questions. Who am I? Who are you? That's how Paul begins chapter 1 of Colossians. Chap verses 1 through 14, he tells us and them who we are. Verses 15 through 20, this is who Christ is. That is answer enough to address this heresy or any heresy that would diminish the position and the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. Um, at the Air Force Academy, I know you know that I was there. This is a good illustration, so please, and I've never shared it. At the Air Force Academy, when myself and a few others were really um, under under investigation for preaching Christ in Jack's Valley. Don't have the time to go through all of that, but I can recall uh, calling, asking anyone on campus who'd like to participate in a meeting. Well, many of our faculty showed up. 
Half of our faculty were civilian. The other half were military. They all had their PhDs, had their doctorates. And so, but you never addressed a military in uniform by the title, academic title. It was always by rank. One of the gentlemen there, and I knew him well, he raised his hand and said, uh, Chaplain. I said, yes, Major, what, can, you know, what is it? He said, my religion is patriotism. I said, and, and who would your God be? He said, he thought, he said, Lady Liberty. I said, okay, Major, your God is patriotism. Uh, pardon me, your religion is patriotism. Your God is Lady Liberty, so your Bible would be the Constitution. Yes. I said, oh. I said, well, I'm also an American, and I believe in the Constitution, but my ultimate allegiance is to Christ. And your Bible gives me the freedom to express that. Right? Okay, okay. Not coerced, but expressive. When we were on vacation in Phoenix, had a great time there, we were with family and dear friends. One of our dear friends said, you know, I, I am so f- worried and fretting about the future of America. And I understand that. And she said, I'm just anxious. I can't even sleep. So I said, well, listen, you know, um, forgive me if this sounds pious, because I too am where you are often, but Philippians 4, 6, and 7 have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving in your heart, let your requests be made known before God, and the peace of God that can pass all understanding will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right, be not anxious. And then I ask, how can we not be anxious? And this is what I believe, church. In fact, if you get nothing from this message, I would, if I can say it correctly in this moment, I would encourage you to remember this. Our anxieties are in direct proportion to our belief of being Christians also. Let me repeat that. Our, I'll use me. My anxiety has to be in direct proportion to me living the life of being a Christian also. If I was a Christian only, I would have no anxiety about anything. In fact, in the previous chapter, Paul says to wit and to you, to the Philippian church, our commonwealth, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do we not get involved? That's not what he's saying at all. What he is saying is you only have one God and that one God, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Spirit, that one God, if you are Christian only, the more we are Christian only, the less anxiety we'll have about anything. So sleep well, because you're in the family of God, regardless what the world looks like. Just like they slept in the first century, when they were under attack from all corners. 
Know who you are. Our citizenship is not in this great country. Our real citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, we can have no anxieties about anything. How do you do that? You simply let go. You know. And we're not talking about being concerned. We're talking about fretting and anxious and whatever it is. Worry. Know who you are. Uh, there, was a, there was a great novel, Roots, written by Alex Haley. Uh, in the 1970s, and this, in fact, it was made a great television series. The novel Roots uh, chronicles uh, over 200 years of, of Mr. Haley's ancestry. And it goes all the way back to Africa where um, he begins the story with Omoro, who is the father of Kunta Kinte. And Kunta Kinte was his great, 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 great grandfather. And it's an incredible story. Chapter 1, we have the father, after Kunta Kinte is born, one of their traditions was to take the baby. He's not been named. No one knows the baby's name, not even the mother. The father takes the child out before the entire community. He lifts him up and he whispers his name. And this is how the book reads. Omora then walked out before all the assembled people of the village. Moving to his wife's side, he lifted up the infant, and as all watched, whispered three times into his son's ear the name he had chosen for him. It was the first time the name had ever been spoken as the child's name. For Omoro's people felt that each human being should be the first to know who he was. Zachariah, Elizabeth, and John the Baptizer, I thought of that moment. And then to really etch this in the reader's memory, later that night, by himself, the father took the child out and held him up to the night sky and said, Behold, the only thing greater than yourself. I think of John 10, 27, when Jesus said, I know my sheep. And the inference is, I know them by name, and they know my voice. And I know you know the voice of Jesus. You know it when Christ whispers to you. You know it when you read Scripture. You know it when another godly person nudges up next to you and shares a word. You know whether it's from God or from something else. The writing didache is non-canonical writing. Um, the word means teaching. And it's the earliest non-canonical writing we have that talks about Christianity. It's very, very brief. You can look it up and read it. But in the didache, written probably in the mid-90s A.D., some say even earlier, at the very least, somewhat contemporary to the great apostles, written there in the latter part of the first century, <clears throat> that they practiced, whoever wrote this uh, in this region, they practiced tri-immersion. And so they talked about being baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. In fact, to this day, the Church of the Brethren, I know because I work with chaplains who are Church of the Brethren, they, they have also practiced tri-immersion. 
And I like the concept, to be honest with you. Just this total immersion. It's as if God is whispering your name three times. After we finish this moment, we have this great baptism, God's going to name his own. And Paul talks about that. So know who you are. Celebrate who you are. We're not going to go through all these verses, 3 through 12, but Paul opens with, we thank God. I'll tell you what, church, we live in a country where Christianity is mocked. It's a myth by many, many, many throughout the world. What do we do? We stand firm and we stand proud because we belong to God, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And our citizenship, if I'm a Brit, a Christian, my citizenship is in heaven. If I'm from Nicaragua, my citizenship is in heaven. As an American, I'm proud to be an American, but my real citizenship is in heaven. And we all, the body of Christ, we all wait from there for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Celebrate who you are. And why do we celebrate? Because we have been delivered and redeemed and forgiven. And Paul will later say reconciled with God redeemed by God, forgiven by God, you know, delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his only son. We have been saved. That's why we celebrate. That's why we stand firm. That's why we have no other God but God. We don't bow down and call science blessed, even though they're hypothetical moments. We don't, we don't bow down and call medical people blessed. We love what they do, but uh, we, we only bow down before one. And when we lose sight of that and become Christians also, everything goes to pot. We have been delivered, redeemed, and forgiven for He, read this with me, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. As I invite our shepherds to walk down to receive the family if those who want to come for prayer, and I encourage everyone to come for prayer, let me remind us that Jesus said to all of us, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come take my yoke. Learn from me. I am meek and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my burden is light and my yoke is easy. 
We all realize that the metaphor of the yoke, a yoke was used to put two oxen together so they could pull in tandem. Have you ever wondered why Jesus said, my, uh, my um, burden is light and my yoke is easy? It's because he's doing all the work. He's doing all the pulling. But he is, by his love and mercy and grace, connected us with him. And we'll realize that more and more as we begin to live a life of being a Christian only. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Come to Christ as we stand and sing.